I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 418 for Monday, July 1st, 2013. Today's guest is pianist Jeffrey Kieser. Now, if you thought that you would never hear those words again, an intro to an episode of the Jazz Session, you're not alone. In fact, you're joined by me because I never really thought I would say that ever again. And it feels awesome. I really missed doing this show. Now, this episode is coming out on the 1st of July, 2013, on the exact same day that I'm starting a Kickstarter project to fund a year of the jazz session. Here's how it's going to work, though. First of all, for all the details, in case you forget everything I say right now, just go to thejazzsession.com slash Kickstarter, and there'll be links to the Kickstarter page and an explanation of the campaign. Here's the basic overview. I'm trying to raise $6,000 in the month of July. That will fund – I now live in Alabama, so that will fund a trip from Alabama to New York City and maybe even two of those if I can stretch out the money, right, so that I can record interviews. And then those 12 interviews will be released one per month for a year. However, these won't just be interview shows like the old episodes of the Jazz Session. Certainly, an in-depth interview will be the heart of the show as it always has been but there'll be even more content. The episodes will be longer since they're only coming out once a month, and they'll have additional content. Maybe it'll be a jazz book or a jazz CD recommendation or a, a talk with an author or a writer about some jazz-related topic or a look behind the scenes at some special event, whatever it might be. There'll be additional content on every one of the 12 episodes. This episode doesn't count toward those 12. This is just a a way of reintroducing you to the show if you were a longtime listener and kind of welcoming you back into the fold and reminding you why you might want more of these. If you're a brand new listener, if you've never heard an episode of The Jazz Session before, first of all, welcome. Thank you very much. And if you go to thejazzsession.com slash Kickstarter, you'll see that there are incredibly affordable ways to help there be 12 more shows. I would say just like this, except they'll be even more content-rich than this one is. And this one's pretty good, if I'm being honest. Uh, you can start pledging as little as five bucks, uh, and you'll be thanked on the website and thanked on the show. Uh, ten bucks and above, you get all kinds of thank you gifts. Uh, at ten dollars, you get a free MP3 from Jeffrey Keezer's album that we're going to talk about today. Beyond that, you get uh, every level above that, you get a free MP3 from each of the twelve guests who are going to be on the show. All the way up through fifty, a hundred dollars, two hundred and fifty, five hundred, and the top level is a thousand dollars. If you pledge a thousand dollars, you can come to want of the to want. <laughs> Some things haven't changed. I still really can't actually speak the English language all that well. You can come to one of the interviews that I do for the new series. Uh, if you don't live anywhere near New York City and you can't fly there, then I'll bring a laptop. And we'll Skype, and you can interact with the artist. You'll be right there. You'll be watching the thing live on video as it happens. Uh, you can chime in. So 
there's really there's all kinds of pledge levels. There's uh, you can get an object signed by all twelve of the guests. You can get uh, CDs, MP3s, copies of my book, blah blah blah. All of that is at thejazzsession.com slash Kickstarter. Now, remember, we only have one month to do this to raise $6,000, which will fund the trips to New York, the server space, the production costs. And actually, the server space is getting kind of ridiculous because even though I haven't been doing these shows, people have still been downloading them. And there are hundreds of hours, hundreds of gigabytes of data on my server that gets downloaded every single day. And that's not cheap. And so I've been trying to fund it myself just out of my own pocket. But, you know, it's it's hard to do. So that six grand will help keep the show up online for the year and everything else. Okay? That seems pretty easy, right? Six grand, we got a month. If we make it, we make it. If we don't, we don't. But if we do, there'll be 12 episodes, one per month, expanded, new and improved, better than ever. You know, no additives or preservatives, except that's not true. There will be additives. And really technically preservatives, too, because they're going to go online. Anyway, I'm digressing. The point is I'm excited. I hope you're excited. If this just popped up randomly in your iTunes feed because you never unsubscribed, well, happy surprises to all of us. Uh, and if you've been bludgeoned over the head by social media and that's how you came here, I apologize, but thank you. And if you just randomly Googled Jeffrey Keezer's name and here you are, fabulous. I'm happy for any of those things. Jeffrey's got a new solo piano record out called Heart of the Piano. The thing is, this record has been in the works for a little while, and he and I actually recorded this interview quite some time ago, more than a year ago in New York City, uh, when he was there uh, playing some gigs. And Jeffrey was actually on the very final, what I thought would be, the very final episode of the Jazz Session, which was episode 417, the one right before this. He and Donnie McCaslin were my guests together at the Detroit Jazz Festival. But I already had this episode in the can. The thing was, they're just, the album hadn't come out, so there didn't seem to be any point in producing a show about an album nobody could hear. Now the album has come out, so there are links uh, to purchase it, uh, all the usual ways, in the show notes of this show. Please follow those and, you know, buy the record and show the record label Motema Music that it was worth having him on the show. Uh, thank you to Motema and Jeffrey also for allowing the free MP3 download if you become a Kickstarter backer. I think that's really all I have to say. This intro is much longer than they normally are, but I'm super excited. I'm so happy to be back with you. I hope you're happy too. I hope you'll pledge. Let's just, let's make this thing happen. Let's make it glorious. Let's make it exciting. And without any further ado, some solo piano magic. In fact, taking you all the way back to my high school days for a classic from Canada's ultimate rock power trio as performed on the piano by Jeffrey Keezer. Here we go.
my guest is pianist and composer Jeffrey Kieser. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Thanks for well, being thank here. Thank you, Jason. I, uh, you, you just mentioned your own age, 41, but you, um, as you said, you came in right when it was still possible to have one of those apprenticeships with a master, and you had the apprenticeship that everyone wanted, which is that you played with Art Blakey. And in fact, you were telling me before we started recording that actually you got to see just a little piece of this negative history that we're talking about when you were with Blakey, right? Yeah. Although it's it's interesting because all of the guys that I worked with that lived through that, Blakey, um, Ray Brown, Art Farmer, you know, J.J. Johnson, some of those guys, they they never really carried that baggage, mm. you know. I mean, they had com- really just – I, I kind of tried to ask Ray about it. I said, what was the, all that like, the segregation and all that? He's like – he's like he just kind of shook his head like, we're not going to go there, you know. And – and um it's funny because I remember uh, somebody went up to Art Blakey when I was in his band and, and and kind of demanded to know why he had so many white guys in his band. You know, it was a mostly white band. And Art just said, I'll look into it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it was it was it was cool. Um, but, yeah, I, I really my my dream. I heard Art Blakey live. I, I grew up in Wisconsin and and my dad. Uh, is a drummer, jazz drummer. And I had a, a bunch of friends of mine all, you know, either going to my high school or in college that were all playing jazz. And, and we, we sort of taught each other how to play. And we found out that Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers were playing about four hours away in the middle of February. So we begged my dad to drive us in a blizzard <laughs> across the state. And uh, I think he threatened to turn around two or three times. I think, please, we got to go. This is our only chance, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, I remember discovering jazz at about age 14 or 15 and discovering Kind of Blue and, and you know, all these records and being very excited, coming up to my dad saying, check this out. you got to hear this. He's like, yeah, I had the record when it came out. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> he heard it the first time, you know. Um but just hearing that band, and it, that was uh, the band that had Terrence Blanchard and Donald Harrison, Mulgrew Miller, um, you know, John Toussaint, Lonnie Plaxico, and I went, oh my God, this, this is it for me. This is what I want to do. I want to play this music. So it, it was really one of those law of attraction kind of things. I r- focused 100% of my energy on Art Blakey music from about age 15 to 18, and I learned every single one of his pieces. I played Art Blakey music in my own little group at home in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Uh, when I got, I went to Berkeley College of Music for a year in '88, and I joined uh, the Art Blakey Ensemble, which was led by Billy Pierce, the saxophonist who was an alumni alumnus. Um, and we actually rehearsed in a room adjacent to the Iron Maiden Ensemble. <laughs> <laughs> so they'd be in there with their marshals cranked up to 10, you know, playing Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and we're trying to play Mayray. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. Berkeley's a pretty interesting environment. You got your maiden in my Blakey. You got your Blakey I, in my yeah, maiden. Yeah, exactly. That's great. Exactly. Um, but I was really focused on that music, and so when I actually had a chance, the way that I met Art Blakey was I, I had become friends with James Williams, pianist, uh, late pianist who himself was um, Art Blakey's pianist and musical director in the late seventies, and he he took me on a visit to New York. I, I would come down to New York and hang out with James a lot, and he took me up to McKell's on the Upper West Side to see Art Blakey. 
play and introduced me to him. He said, Art, you know, he's a nice, uh, you know, young pianist you should, you should hear. And Art's like, well, come sit in. I went, oh my God. You know, so I got up on stage and, and I, I knew all the music, you know, and, and played probably Monin and a couple other tunes and Art sort of, I guess he sort of, sort of offered me the gig, but not really. I, I didn't, I didn't really understand what he had said. But then at a later date, uh, when I was going to to school in Boston, the band came to the Regatta Bar, and again, uh, Benny Green, who was the pianist, was gracious enough to let me sit in. And after the performance, I was sitting kind of on the side of the, sort of by the door, and, and Art walked up to me. And, and this, these were in the days when you didn't have to worry about identity theft. And he comes up to me and he says, give me a copy of your passport and your social security number. <laughs> I said, what? He goes, you're going to be in the band soon. You know, we're going to Europe. Blah, blah, blah. I said, wow, okay. You know, <laughs> Still, I, I didn't hear anything officially from him. Um, I moved to New York in the fall, of, uh, I think September of 1989, with a, a, a buddy of mine who just he demanded that I move to New York with him. He needed a roommate. You know, he said, get in the car, get your stuff. We're gone. I said, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and I hadn't been in New York for even a week. And somehow, I don't know how, but my phone rang and it was arts tour manager saying art wants you in his band. And you know, you're going to start with us at sweet basil in September. And I went, wow, dream come true. But to me it was, I mean, it really was bef before any of the, the law of attraction stuff has become kind of popular new agey, you know, wisdom. I mean that I, I had been living my life that way. And so to actually be offered the gig, I was like, this is really great. It's a dream come true. But of course, this is what I've, this is what I've, you know, the last three years of my life have been all about. And so it was fantastic. There was no rehearsal. You know, Art expected you to know all the music. Ray Brown was the same way. There's no rehearsals. You know, you just, if you came into the band, you were supposed to know the tunes. <laughs> That's just how it went. There's no hand holding, no babysitting, you know, yeah. <laughs> no charts. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, 
that was uh, we toured all over the world. One of my first gigs with Art was, and this is on YouTube. It was in Leverkusen. It was uh, Germany, uh, his seventieth birthday concert, and it was. I basically got over all of my stage fright all at once because <laughs> <laughs> I found myself on stage with every practically every living legend musician that I had been listening to and transcribing and, and sort of deifying since I was 14 years old, you know, so I'm, I'm looking around, I see I'm on stage with Freddie Hubbard, Benny Colson, Curtis Fuller, Jackie McLean, Wayne Shorter, you know, uh, Roy Haynes was playing drums also, Walter Davis, Buster, you know, all these guys. And I'm just going, Oh my God. You know, I felt like I, I remember when the, the first star Wars prequel came out, and Ewan McGregor said, the way he described being on the set of Star Wars, he said he looked around and he saw R2-D2 and <laughs> all these things, and he went, oh, my God, I'm in Star Wars, right? right? <laughs> I went, oh, my God, I'm in Art Blakey's band. And it was really neat. Um, about a month or two later, I met Miles Davis. And how I met Miles was I had done a rehearsal... Um, I think it was actually with Roy Hargrove, but Al Foster was playing drums in the rehearsal. And and Al, I guess, went to Miles and recommended me to him. So I'm, I'm, I met Miles Davis backstage at Avery Fisher Hall, and I was wearing a trench coat, like a London Fog trench coat, really bad 80s glasses, and, and like one of those Wisconsin standard-issued 1940s Jimmy Stewart haircuts. Right. <laughs> And I went up to Miles, you know, and, I, and everyone was getting his autograph. And I just walked up to him and said, hi, Miles, I'm that piano player Al Foster told you about. And he kind of looked me over and he said, you look like you can't do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but then he gave me a hug. He's like, come here, you know. And, and so we kept in touch a little bit. And I, and I got to meet Miles and hang out with him a few times. And he really wanted me in his band. He kept saying we should work together. And he said something very profound, which... I've remembered to this day, and it's actually the older I've gotten, the more profound it gets. He just said, he said, you know, I said, Miles, I'm sorry I can't be in your band right now. I just joined Art Blakey. And he said, yeah, Art Blakey's cool, but the only way you're going to grow as a musician is to be uncomfortable. Which was his, if I think about it, his philosophy, right? He kept changing his band because for his own personal growth, you know? I, I think... You know, he he sort of reinvented music several times in his career, but it was more about him needing to do something different to not stagnate. And uh, so he said that to me, and I thought, my God, how how profound is that? He really he knew that I was comfortable playing straight ahead jazz. He wanted me playing in his band because he thought that would grow me more as a musician. Um, but I just couldn't. I I was just I just got in my dream band with Art Blakey, and I didn't. I just couldn't change that sure. fast you know so i missed that opportunity but i mean what a, an incredible thing to to sort of have you know miles davis seeking you out as well you know it's so interesting too because as i think i would i had showed you before we started i had written down a list of the, the recent records that came out so i could remember them all but even as i think of your career over the the, the longer term since i since the beginning you you are constantly a person who seems to be living Miles' advice to you. I mean, you're like no two of the albums that have come out recently even kind of resemble one another. They don't have the same musicians on them. They're not stylistically similar. Right. They're compositionally completely different. And in some cases, that's because other people are also contributing compositions. But 
you've just been a part of so many bands that have nothing to do with one another. Right. And, <laughs> and yet there's always some really comfortable – I'm well, comfortable. That's ironic. But there's always some place for you. You always seem to find some way to say, okay, this is what I can bring to this music. So it sounds like you've put that into practice. I mean, put the thing that Miles told you. Yeah, practice. yeah. I, I guess one of my career role models would be Chick Corea. I mean, he's one of my favorite pianists, and he's become a good friend over the years. But something when when you, when you look at Chick's career, almost every year he's got a new project out, and it's always something different and interesting. And, and um, I've never been able to just do the same thing. I, I I think if you look at someone like maybe Brad Meldow or Keith Jarrett, they've they've you know over the last 20 years of saying this, we're going to do the trio. This is, this is what it's going to be about. And, and they early on branded themselves that way, which is a very smart thing to do. Um, people always know what they're going to get with me. Nobody has any idea what they're going to get, which is, it's been a little bit probably detrimental career wise. Cause I, I don't really have anything I can, the promoters can, you know, quite latch onto in their mind is just like, well, what is this guy about? Right. You know? Yeah. There's really no such thing as a Jeffrey Keezer record. Right. Yeah. I, I haven't yet <laughs> done that. <laughs> um, but I just love so many different kinds of music. And I, growing up, my, both of my parents were musicians and my mother was a classical French horn player and my dad is a jazz drummer. So between the two of them, they had a pretty diverse record collection. Sure. And so I was listening to, Beethoven symphonies and and Bach organ chorales and at the same time Oscar Brown Jr.'s Sin and Soul or Weather Report's Black Market right. record or Gary Burton and Chick Corea Crystal Silence all these things were part of what I heard growing up um, and uh, maybe in my twenties I started to really become interested in other kinds of music Okinawan music and and um, Indian music and just all these things that really grab my ear. And when I hear a kind of music, for example, the, the Afro Peruvian record we did called Aurea uh, a few years ago, I visited Peru in 2004 to play on a jazz festival. And it was Maria Schneider. It was a big band conducted by Maria Schneider and it was half North American musicians and half Peruvian musicians. And, um, we played with uh, the the drummer that played with us was a guy named Hugo Alcazar from Peru, and we were playing Maria's music. But then we would play some of the Peruvian music, and they would play ours, and we would play theirs, and we we would all get together, and it was this really cool cultural exchange thing. And I th and I heard some beats uh, and a style of music down there that I'd never heard before, Afro-Peruvian music. Like, what is that? You know? And I just fell in love with it. I mean, oh my god, th those beats just really got under my skin. And when I hear something I like, I just can't leave well enough alone. I have to play it. <laughs> I have to collaborate. It's just my thing, you know? Um, so over the last 10 years, I've, I would say that my career, my solo career has been all about collaboration. I did a mm. thing with a Hawaiian slack key guitarist, uh, you know, another one with a traditional Okinawan singer, uh, the Afro-Peruvian thing, um, an electronica collaboration uh, called Mantra Echo. You know, it's, it's just a, just a big, wide variety of stuff. 
Yeah, it's, it's pretty <laughs> impressive. I'd like to talk about one of the things that came out um, recently, which is the collaboration called Mill Creek Road that you did with Peter Sprague. And it's funny yeah. that you mentioned uh, Chick Corea just a minute ago, because actually as soon as I started listening to this record, it really because in the 80s I listened to a ton of Chick's bands. And as soon as I started hearing this record and all this really cool intricate piano guitar stuff together, and I mean I was – I don't – not to say it's derivative, but I mean it really reminded me strongly of that feel, like that really exciting kind of. Oh, I, I'd be complimented even if you said it was derivative. <laughs> if we got to the essence of it, oh no, I gosh, I I love Chick. I mean, one of the first records I had by him was called The Leprechaun. Oh man, yeah. In in '75, and I remember I was in kindergarten and we had show and tell, so I, I was really into synthesizers. I, I thought they were the coolest things in the world. So I had built a little toy synthesizer out of, um, <laughs> got a picture of it somewhere, out of a block of wood and some spools and rubber bands and thimbles, and I'd written things on it like LFO and oscillator, <laughs> you know, <laughs> O-S-S-I-L-A-T-E-R, you know. <laughs> and I brought it into show and tell, and I put the record on, uh, the opening track on the Leprechaun, which is this, this uh, multi-track synth thing that Chick did. And I pretended I was playing along with it. That was just my thing. You know? I was just <laughs> a nerdy, funny music kid. <laughs> But that sound, I, I, I mean, I love it. And Peter Sprague, we all we both love Chick. And in fact, a, a funny story: I, when I was playing with Ray Brown um, in eighty, no, sorry, ninety eight or ninety nine, we, we had one gig where we did a double bill with Chick's uh, Origin group when he was touring with his Origin band. And so I saw Chick standing at the back of the room, and I went, "Oh crap!" You know, <laughs> so. <laughs> I, I was trying to tell myself, whatever you do, don't play any Chick Corea licks, you know, don't play any of stuff, play your own stuff. And everything that came out was just Chick, 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 Chick. I couldn't play anything but Chick Corea. <laughs> and so at dinner later, we were all sitting at a big long table and I sat next down next to my hero and I said, Chick, um, what do I owe you for stealing all your licks? <laughs> and he, he took out his hand and pretended his hand was a calculator and he started pressing buttons and he goes, uh, yeah, you can't afford it. <laughs> Can you um, 
can you talk a little bit about why you're here in New York right now? This is yet another one of your many hats. Yeah, I, I'm in New York at the moment. I'm playing at the Blue Note with with Chris Bodie. Uh, he plays he plays here, I guess, every year for two or three weeks, every single night. So we've been playing from January. I'm sorry, December fifteenth through January first. Wow. And uh, that that's fun. It's um it's a little bit more of a pop kind of gig. Uh, it's certainly not. I know, I know that uh, he kind of gets put in that smooth jazz category, but I think it's really not that. Um, there's elements of that, but there's also kind of classical pops, and there's some straight ahead jazz mixed in. Um, it's it's a fun gig, you know. It it really. Uh, I've been doing it on and off for about three years. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, I'm having a good time. Cool. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you, actually, and I, I didn't think of it until after you had finished talking about art. Um, when you spent so much time, you know, as a, a kind of a teenager, immersing yourself in the music of one person, when that period was done and it was time to do the next thing, was it difficult to kind of divorce yourself from playing in the Blakey school and playing the Blakey canon? And had you kind of created a style for that purpose? Yes, in fact, that's a really good question, and no one's ever asked me that before. Um, I, I had to learn really quickly that the way that I was playing with Art Blakey, which was a really, I, and we didn't use monitors even, so I had to play extremely heavily on the piano. Guys, I played kind of bombastically, actually, you know, uh, just to be heard. And the the next gig I did uh, after that was with Art Farmer in his band and and I worked with him for about five or six years and you know you can't approach Art Farmer the same way that you would Art Blakey playing with Art Farmer was kind of more like accompanying a vocalist you know very much more sensitive kind of playing and I had to whoa let me pull it back a notch but I think the the biggest eye-opener I had was playing duets with Jim Hall um and Jim God bless him. I mean, he's just such a, a kind person that he'll always find the nicest way to say something. So I remember he hired me to play a week with him at the Vanguard in about, I, I guess I don't remember when it was, but maybe around 2000 or early 2000s. And and I went in there playing pretty busy, you know, I, I mean, I play a lot of notes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, And playing pretty busy and doing my whole two-handed, you know, piano thing, whatever it is. And Jim pulled me aside after the first set of the first night. He said, man, it sounds great. You know, I really dig what you're doing, man. But do you think you can just kind of thin it out a little bit? You know, just, I said, oh, sure, sure. So the next set, I tried to play a little bit less. And this this went on for about three or four nights. You know, each time, very kindly, you know, very diplomatically would ask me to just play less. And And I started just really playing like very minimally and very sparse or what I thought was, I thought, God, if I play any less, I'm not going to be here at all. I'm just going to vaporize, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and, uh, Jim was, that's what he wanted. He, what I found that he really wanted was not so much pianistic kind of stuff, but he wanted kind of single line contrapuntal, you know, dialogue, he, Jim's actually kind of an old school twelve tone row cat, right? You know, kind of an old school free jazz guy. Um, in fact, I remember playing, uh, going to to uh, to Europe with Jim a few times, and one time a promoter came up to me in the airport, 
before we even got when he was picking us up and he begged me he said please would you please ask mr hall to play some bebop tonight (laughs) i said i'll try and so i went to jim i said jim the promoter wants to know if you can play some bebop and go jim goes what the hell is bebop (laughs) he said i mean i remember like you know going to hear charlie parker in the 40s but i mean what i don't know what bebop is (laughs) um but what I took away from that was like, oh, you know, there's so many different ways that you can approach this music. And, and it was a, a real growth experience for me mm-hmm. as a musician to try to find a way to still be myself, whatever that is, and, and get my, my voice into the music, but without doing my usual acrobatic piano shtick that I do, you know? <laughs> sure. But although it sounds like it's a lesson less about changing about changing who you are than about finding all the facets. Yeah, absolutely. That's very well put. But I mean, like the same thing. I, I, I'm finding that I, I can enjoy going on stage with Chris Bodie and playing a D minor triad on a string pad, you know, and holding it for, for three minutes and, and be like, fine, that's, that's what's needed in that music at this moment. You know, I don't have to always be busy. I don't have to be playing all the hippest, you know, quote unquote hip, you know, lesson one, basic hip, right. you know, <laughs> voicings and all that stuff, you know, and I, and I think it's a good idea for young musicians um, who who want to work you know as a pianist or as, as any on, on any instrument if you want to work if you want to have a career I think it's a really good idea to, to be versatile and and be willing to go outside of your comfort zone um, and and just do what the music requires not what you not just to always get your stuff in there you know sure um, and that and that's been kind of an ongoing process for me just learning how to just do just the right thing you know yeah one i guess quick way to distill yourself down to who you are is to play solo where you have nothing but what comes out of your own brain and you've just recorded an album of exactly that solo piano playing can you tell us more about that that's just coming out yeah well you know we were talking before a little bit about branding and i um was sitting down at dinner with some friends 
a few months ago, and and they kind of asked me, they said, well, what is it that you really want to do? How do you want to really present yourself to the world? And like, you know, we said, we've, I've done so many different kinds of projects, um, but I've noticed when I play concerts, a lot of times I'll, I'll put in a little solo piano piece or two, and those more often than not are the ones that the, you, you know, audiences will come up to me after and say, man, I really love that solo piano thing. That was just so cool. Um, and I've had students, I, I did a solo piano record about 12 years ago called Zero One mm -hmm. when I was with Ray Brown. And uh, I keep being asked, when are you going to make another solo piano record? When are you going to make it? So I finally decided, okay, I'm, you know, uh, I got over my fear of, <laughs> and uh, practiced, actually practiced for a month and, and recorded this thing. And uh, it's 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 what I would like to do more. I, w I would like to do a lot more solo piano concerts. Um, I would like this to sort of be my thing, my brand for for now. And um, the music is is really reflective of what I'm into right now. I mean, I I covered uh, Rush's Limelight. I covered wow. Katie Tunstall, Lannis Morissette. Um, Peter Gabriel's Come Talk to Me. Uh, did some jazz stuff. I did a tune called New York by Donald Brown. Um, some free improv improvisations. It's just a real mixture of things. Um, but really trying to have it just be music. Not really too worried about what kind of jazz it is or if it's even jazz at all. Some of it probably isn't. <laughs> yeah. One thing about that, though... Um, is that I, I know because of the homework I did as a younger musician and because of the pedigree I have playing with guys like Art Blakey and, and Ray Brown is that when when I'm when I want to swing, when I want to go back and play more traditional jazz, I've I, I know I can. You know, I I think that and I'm not saying this to to brag, I'm just saying that I, I think that that quality is missing from a lot of the younger players. Um there's sort of a, you know, people kind of make the excuse, well, it's just music and it's, it's all about being creative and it's all about what's happening now. But I, I really do think that this music has a real lineage and there's a real history to, to deal with. And the more that you, let's say, for example, as a pianist, the more that you can at least research the early stuff and be in touch with that, um, that's only going to make your, you know, creative uh, 21st century ex explorations have that much more depth. You know, I, I think that you, if you, if you want to really be serious about this music, you really do have to get some history in your playing. You know? at, at the risk of asking a stupid question, why is that? Why is it the fact that you played with Art Blakey has some actual impact when you're doing something that sounds to the average listener like it's in no way related to what that is. Why do you think that right. that connection? I think, well, it, it may not directly relate. I mean, I'm certainly, if, if I'm playing a Katie Tunstall tune, I'm, it's, there's not going to be any Art Blakey in it. <laughs> right, right. But I think at the same time, if the next track on the CD is going to be like a, a, a blues, you know, then it's really going to have, when I, when I, when I play uh, with a swing feel, I still feel Art Blakey in my bones. 
You know, I feel that really, or the feeling of playing with other great drummers that I was so lucky to play with, Billy Higgins or Ben Riley or Roy Haynes, guys like that. I just, Jack DeJanette, I can just feel that in my body. So when I, when I play, I try, to, I try to make it still really dance and make it feel good like that. And, you know, when I play ballads, I'm, I'm really thinking about Hank Jones and I'm thinking about Art Tatum and I'm thinking about that, that whole lineage of, of uh, solo piano, which, which was coming out of a stride era, which says I'm not playing stride necessarily, but there's, there's some kind of depth maybe in the left hand, you know, so I'm trying to play the whole piano. Guys like, and Phineas Newborn Jr. was another big influence of mine. And, and Buddy Montgomery. When I first moved to New York in 89, I, Buddy Montgomery used to play six nights a week solo piano up at the Parker Meridian Hotel. And it was one of those pianos where it had a bar around it, and you could kind of sit around it having drinks. And, and you'd see Johnny Mandel would be in there hanging out or various Broadway folk. Everybody would go in there to hear Buddy. And, and Buddy Montgomery was the first person I ever heard really use the extreme ranges of the piano, like the very bottom octave and the very top octave, as an actual viable range to, to play melodies in, you know, or bass lines. So he, he would really stretch the entire length of the keyboard. I say that because a lot of jazz pianist players, jazz pianists kind of stick in the middle range of the piano a lot. Um, and, and there's also this thing, kind of post-Bud Powell way of playing the jazz where your your right hand is always playing all the melodies and your left hand's playing the chords and um I, i'm i'm trying there there's there's guys like fred hirsch or 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 brad meldow and there's there's a few others but i i I'm, i think i'm one of those guys that tries to use both hands equally sure you know um, is that that kind of stay in the middle style of playing? Did that evolve out of small group playing, where someone else was already handling the high end and there was a bass player? Yeah, I, I, I would I would think so. Does that change how you work when you play in groups if you try to use the whole range of the piano? It it can. I, th I think you have to adjust according to the situation. Sure. Um, but I think 
you know, the reason I'm interested in solo piano right now is I think I think that's maybe more than anything else <clears throat> what I can contribute right now to the music as a you know as as sort of my thing that's a little bit unique you know it's it's not to say that it's groundbreaking or that it's you know in any way as great as anything that's come bef- you know before but it's i think it's the probably the most unique thing i can do and um you know by contrast like uh when, i mean i love Brad Melda he he can he's able to play two completely independent melodies at the same time, which is like a, just a massive feat of engineering and brain power, <laughs> you know, and I'm a little different. My left hand's more like a bass player. And I always feel like my, my two hands listen to different people. You know, my, my left hand is like Jocko and Ray Brown and Bootsy Collins, maybe some kind of strange hybrid of those right. three. And then my right hand is, is all the other jazz piano guys, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. Do you find uh, – I've interviewed a lot of people, of course, over the years who've made solo records, and they seem in the, the answers to this next question to be kind of split in two camps. So I usually ask, you know, what's the effect of playing solo on you as a player? And some people say that it causes them to have to assume the responsibility of the, the missing band, for lack of a better word. Mm. And for other people, it frees them from the concept of a band and mm. allows them just to go places they might not when joined by other musicians. And my guess is there's also, of course, some middle range, but I'd be interested where you kind of fall in that. Well, for me, the, the most important thing playing solo is that there's still a groove. And uh, that's one thing that I hear missing in a lot of solo piano players. It, you know, as, as hip as the their voicings may be or, or concept, a lot of times it, it almost gets into that cocktail piano thing just inadvertently because that strong pulse isn't there and uh that's one thing to me that's really important in this music i mean the the music has always had some kind of groove to it and i mean this is not to say i've i've done i've i've done things that don't have a strong beat you know i've done rubato pieces and and, and all that but i think when it's time to groove you got to really be able to do it <laughs> um so I try, and uh, a lot of that is by having a strong left hand, you know, and, and the left hand acts kind of like a bassist and a drummer at the same time. Um, so that's the that's the really that's the prime directive for me is is to have to play with good time and, and a strong groove. Um, then comes harmony. Um, you know, my role models for harmony, my my main one is probably Hank Jones. There was a record he made in the seventies called tiptoe tap dance. And, uh, that is to me a textbook of solo piano. And in, in a way it distills the, the earlier styles. There's some, some stride on there, but it's all in a, in a way that's kind of accessible a little bit more. Um, and so whenever I teach, I don't teach all that much, but whenever I do get a, a private student, I'll, I'll say, look, just go get this record and transcribe <laughs> everything on there and come back if you have any questions, you know? <laughs> um, not really, I wouldn't say that. But but that was a, uh, that's a major record for me. Um, another one is, is uh, Phineas Newborn's World of Piano, yeah, which he did have a rhythm section on that, but it would have been just fine even without the rhythm section, you know? <laughs> 
I mean, for example, he plays, Phineas Newborn plays the entire, Dizzy Gillespie's entire big band arrangement of Manteca. You hear everything. You hear the trombone parts, saxophone parts, trumpet. It's all there. Um, It sounds sometimes like he has four hands. (laughs) (laughs) So those were kind of my main main role models. Sure. uh, You you know, maybe harmonically also Wayne Shorter uh, posts... Post Blue Note, Wayne Shorter. I mean, from like Weather Report on, right? Um, high Life period, you know that kind of that kind of harmonic concept. Also, Donald Brown, uh, the composer and pianist in, in from Knoxville, and uh, more recently, like Maria Schneider's music, um, some more modern classical kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, just always trying to find something interesting and, and really trying to go for an element of surprise. So whether it's by kind of shocking, you know, quick dynamic changes on the piano or just uh, flurries of, you know, sort of crazy <laughs> arpeggios or, or just something extremely simple kind of le- going towards more of a Bill Evansy kind of thing. It's funny. Ironically, Bill Evans, as great as he is, was never one of my uh, influences, really. Mm. It wasn't one of my piano heroes. Um, because he was someone you didn't spend a lot of time listening to, or you did, but he just didn't resonate with you in that? Yeah, not, not so much as a younger player. I, I get it more now. I can listen to Bill Evans now and go, oh, it's great. It's fantastic. I love it. But it was not something that I really latched onto early on, because I, I think I was just really more into the the, the kind of stronger swinging, grooving guys like Bobby Timmons, Wynton Kelly, you know, Oscar Peterson, that kind of thing. And, 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 and Bill is a much more kind of, I, I mean, you know, you have to have kind of mature ears to, to, to dig it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, uh, uh, kind of harmonically speaking, uh, this is a very rare thing because we're actually talking about a record on this show that I haven't heard, which almost never happens on the jazz session, but I haven't actually heard the solo piano record as we're talking about it. Um, but I grew up listening to tons of prog rock. So when you mention, you know, both Rush and Peter Gabriel as 
pieces that are going to appear on this record. I'm very curious to know what you did with them, how you approached oh, them. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, <laughs> ironically, uh, I approached uh, the song Limelight by Rush as if I were Hank Jones recording it on Tiptoe Tap Dance. <laughs> I said, I what would Hank do with this? So when you hear it, and if, and if you know the Tiptoe Tap Dance record, you'd be like, oh, wow, that, that is really a trip. <laughs> um, and and the Peter Gabriel I, come talk to me. I just kind of uh, set up this little uh, ostinato thing in the left hand. And um, it's it's interesting. It's, it's very different. All of them are very different from the originals. Sure. Yeah. But it's it's music that's just as important to me as as any other music, you know that I, that I've heard. Yeah, yeah, know. me too. Uh, my guest has been Jeffrey Keezer. It's uh, such a pleasure, man. I feel like uh, this is long overdue, and I hope we'll do it again because it's really been great to talk to you. Thanks yeah, for being here. thank you, thank you for making the time. Yeah, my pleasure. Cool. That's music from Jeffrey Keezer's new album, Heart of the Piano, available on Motema Music. You'll find links to purchase it in the show notes. And if you become a Kickstarter backer, thejazzsession.com slash Kickstarter, if you become a Kickstarter backer at 10 bucks or above, you'll get a free MP3 download from this record. Listen, I don't know what else to say. I hope you will go over and chip in some money. I hope you'll tell all your friends, tweet about it, Facebook it, put it in your email list, wrap it around a brick and chuck it through your neighbor's window, whatever seems appropriate. Because all we have to do is raise six grand in a month, and the show can come back for a year. I think that's worth it. I hope you do, too. I think it's important that we document this music. If you love jazz, if you love music, if you care about documenting history as it happens, please help me bring back the jazz session, okay? Thank you so much for being here. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. Huge thanks to Josh Rutner and Patrick McCurry, who were instrumental uh, behind the scenes and getting this thing ready for prime time. And thank you for becoming a uh, backer of the Kickstarter campaign. I, that's all I got to say, really. I just I want to keep talking to you for so long. I've missed you all so much, and I love you. Follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. Let's bring the jazz session back. Let's do it. Uh, and here's Red Waringa.
Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.